I uh, have the great privilege of um, introducing Reggie Horn. You have to come on up, Reggie. Uh, Reggie has been a, a good friend of Bert and obviously the church here for a long time. And like I'd mentioned in the pastoral prayer, uh, which set short notice, I think it was like five or six o'clock last night. He probably got the call. <laughs> we need you. We're throwing up the Batman sign. Come, <laughs> come preach for us. So um, obviously in, their pa- in our um, notes here, it says uh, we're going to be doing the sermon in Mark chapter 11, and that's not going to happen. Um, Reggie was bringing us a sermon from um, Ephesians this morning. And he is from a local church, Redemption uh, Church. And so um, he's filled the pulpit before in the past with us. And uh, we're excited to hear uh, the word. So um, with that, I'll turn it over to Reggie Horn. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it is a pleasure for me to be here this morning, although the circumstances of Bert being sick are certainly not um, pleasant. And um, we have been praying for him and hope that he recovers quickly. I've known Bert just quick, quick. Uh, background information. I've known Bert for a long time. Bert and I used to play sports against each other in Augusta. We went to rival high schools, and uh, so we still sort of hate each other a little bit, but we like each other as well. And um, Bert and I spent a little bit of time in college together. We spent one year together in college, and so uh, I've known Bert for a long time, and I'm very thankful for Bert and um, for his ministry here at Berea, and um, we were happy to see him come back to Augusta whenever he I graduated from seminary and came back this way. It's also joyful for me to be here this morning, or a good thing, because my good friend Tim Alba and his family are uh, part of uh, Berea Church as well. So um, it's just a good good thing to be able to be with you guys this morning. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and uh, and then we'll move on from there. So let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to um, to come before your presence this morning. God, thank you that already we've had the opportunity to sing to pray, to lift up requests to you, to be together. Um, and, and God, we thank you that we can gather around the name of Jesus. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, we, are, we can directly and boldly approach your throne of grace. So God, we pray uh, very specifically for Bert uh, and his family. Pray that you would help Bert to heal quickly, uh, help his family to uh, be sustained and uplifted during this uh, uh, just a difficult time of not really knowing what's going on and how to fix what's going on. Uh, but God, specifically now as we enter into a time of um, hearing your word proclaimed, um, of preaching, God, I pray that you would uh, use me during the next few minutes as we examine your word simply as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel, an instrument of your love. God, that Christ would be lifted high and that all men might be drawn to you. God, I pray that, um, or God, I fully recognize that my words are, are of little significance this morning, but God, your word and what you would have us hear are, are of great significance. So God, I pray that we would hear from you, pray that you would uh, work in our hearts and minds to draw us close to you and reveal your word to us. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you want to flip over to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 this morning. I'll give you a chance um, to flip there. But Ephesians Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14 and um, going down to verse 21. This is what God's Word says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And this is God's word. In the book of Ephesians up until we get to chapter 3 and specifically in the passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul has been speaking to the Ephesian church about some really big ideas. He's been teaching the, the folks at Ephesus about their identity in Christ and what Christ has blessed them with. He's told them that they were blessed with every spiritual blessing, that, that it's already theirs in Christ. He has told them that they were chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be God's own possession, to be God's own inheritance. He has told them that they have received redemption, forgiveness, an inheritance from the Father, that they've received the gift of the Holy Spirit as um, a token of what is to come. He has saved them by grace, God's own doing, through faith that he enabled them to have. He's reminded them that Christ's earthly work of redemption was how God was reconciling the world to himself. And he's reminded them that God unites his people into a body, a community, a, a church, for the purpose of carrying out the mission of reconciliation that God has. Because God has revealed something great to his church, and it's the gospel and God has united his people together as a church for the purpose that the gospel may go forth, that disciples might be made. And so Paul has reminded the Ephesian church of these things over and over and over and over up until we get to Ephesians chapter 3. And then in the very passages we're dealing with this morning, Paul begins to pray for these believers that are a part of this church. And he prays some very specific things in verses 16 and 17, let me read them again. Paul says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. He goes on to say may have strength to comprehend God's love. He, he prays that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And the essence of this request is something along the lines that just like someone who is ill or sick, needs to be strengthened to be made well. So inwardly, God's people need to be strengthened to fulfill what God has called them to. In verses 17 and 18, he, he prays that the, the, the Ephesian church would come to know and grasp the love of Christ. He specifically says the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. And in reality, we would probably say that God's love is incomprehensible, right? That we can't fully grasp it, but, but Paul prays here that they would get it, that they would understand it. And if you look closely at verse number 18, Paul says that this is a group exercise. He specifically says, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth with all the saints. And so it's something we do together um, as we gather in community to hear God's word, as we live life together, all those things we... Um, seek a full comprehension of God's love. And in verse 19, he prays that they would know the fullness of God. 
that they would be filled with all that God has for them. And that's a bit harder to explain, right? And so the only way I can grasp this my, mentally with my, um, with just, just me, my feeble brain, is to think of it like we're a mason jar and God is the ocean. And um, God can fill us up with all that he has and, and, and he can continue to fill us up and we can be overflowing with what God has for us. And that's what Paul prays for the Ephesian church here, that they would be filled full with what God has for them. In verse 20 and 21, Paul closes this passage or this, this particular section of his letter um, with great praise to the Father, great doxology, that God is able to do great things, even more than we even think he could do or even more than we know to ask. And so Paul has spent this entire letter letting the Ephesian church know these things that I just mentioned before. And here he prays very specific things for these believers. And the interesting thing here is that he's praying what he's praying for believers. Now, he spent the entire letter telling the believers that they have things from Christ, and then he prays that they would have those things. So it's very pastoral. It's very loving that Paul wants them to experience and grasp and know what he's been telling them that they already have. But it's also kind of curious, right? Because Paul's been saying, all of these things are yours in Christ, and now I'm going to pray that you would have them. And so when I think about that, just when I take a step back and I ask myself, or, or when I think about this passage, I have to take a step back and ask myself uh, a couple of things. Number one, why is Paul doing this? Why is Paul praying that the Ephesian believers would have something that he tells them they already have? But it also forces me to ask myself the question of, is what Paul praying for these believers tr- true in my life, right? So Paul was praying that they would be strengthened. And so have I and am I being strengthened through the riches of Jesus in my everyday life? Right? Because Paul prays that they would be strengthened by the riches of God, which are infinite. And am I being strengthened like Paul is praying here? It, it, if, if you were to look at my life, would a characteristic of my life be that I am strengthened by the Holy Spirit because of what God is doing for me? Or if you were to look at me, would you say that's a puny and weak Christian who fails a lot every time he's tempted because there's a gap between the truth of what God offers me and my reality and my experience of what God offers me? If you were to look at me, would you be able to say that that guy understands the love of Christ, the width? and the depth and the length and the height of it. Because if you were to look at me and you were to say, that guy gets it, then you would have to say, that guy probably has fully grasped the meaning of God's love and the gospel and it's affected every area of my life. But if you were to look at my life, would you be able to say that about me? Or would you say, maybe your life needs to look a little different than it does if Christ really has if, if the gospel really has impacted every area of your life? A- am I constantly being filled with the fullness of God? Am I daily being renewed in the Holy Spirit and overflowing with God's riches? Or is my little jar dry and empty like a desert? Are you with me? The passage forces me to ask those questions because like I said, Paul prays or, or Paul spends three chapters up to this point, telling them that they have all these things from Christ, and then he prays that they would have them. So why? Why is it? Let me ask you this question. Has there ever been a time in your life when there's been a gap between something you knew to be true 
and what you actually experienced as reality? Has there ever been a gap between truth and reality? Has there ever been a gap between what you know in your brain and what actually happens in your life? Are you with me? A gap. I've been married for 15 years. Um, I'm 37. I have two small children. And, um, well, they're seven and five. They're not so small anymore. They're growing up. But I've been married for 15 years. And the first year that my wife and I, or the first Christmas that my wife and I celebrated together after we were married, uh, my wife bought me something that I had wanted for a long time. She bought me a, a, a whitewater kayak. And um, it was a dream come true. I had my own whitewater kayak. And so I got involved with a group of guys here in Augusta who uh, kayaked a lot. They would actually go away every weekend and go whitewater kayaking. Um, they would get together during the week, once a week, to play something called kayak football. And if you've never heard or seen of kayak football, it's amazing. The best I can describe it is it's like ultimate frisbee in a kayak with a football. That makes sense? And so as a part of this game, you could get tackled. And essentially what that means is you get your kayak flipped over. So it became very important for me to learn how to roll my kayak back upright, right? Because when you're out on the canal or the river or wherever it is and you flip over in the kayak, you want to get back upright because it's not a good thing to be underwater. Don't know if you knew that or not. So... I began to read about how to flip a kayak, and I began to ask these guys that I kayaked with, how do I do this? You know, what's the method? What's the trick? How do I do it? And so they began to, to tell me how to do it, and so I began to visualize it where you roll over in the kayak, and you roll forward, if that makes sense, and you get the paddle a certain way up above the water, and you pull the paddle down, and you roll your hips, and you pop back up. And so for weeks, I would go out and practice with these guys and try to figure out how to roll a kayak. And then one day in February on the Savannah River, it was cold, and uh, these guys were hardcore, and um, they were making me learn how to roll in, in the wintertime, and I was out on the Savannah River, flipped my kayak over, and it all came together, right? I rolled my hips, I pulled the paddle down, I popped back up, and it was amazing. But there was no longer a gap between what I had studied about and what I had been told and what was the truth of how to flip a kayak and the reality of being able to flip a kayak. Are you with me? There was a gap until I made it happen. There was a gap until all the pieces came together and I was able to say, hey, this is really cool. And so then um, I would just do it for the fun of it after that. Um, it was a really big deal for me as it related to kayaking. Prior to that, like I said, there was a gap between what I knew and what I experienced. And you see, the problem for most of us in our Christian life is not that we don't know the truth. We know that our identity is in Christ. We, we, we know that we belong to him and that he set us apart for his purposes, but there's a gap between the truths of the gospel and our everyday reality. There's a gap between our knowledge of what Christ offers us and our experience. And that gap really just serves, serves to subvert our identity in Christ and our understanding of God's work in our lives. There's a gap. One of my favorite authors and pastors is a guy named Paul David Tripp. And uh, Paul David Tripp has written a bunch of books, and um, you can listen to some of his sermons online as well. 
But a few years ago, he co-wrote a book called How People Change. Uh, it's a great book. It's a great book, completely focused around the gospel. And in that book, he specified some specific ways or places where this gap between the gospel and our experience shows up in our lives and how that gap serves to blind us from certain things, how it serves to subvert our identity and, um, and various things like that. And so specifically, he wrote that this gap between the gospel and, and, and our everyday reality, whatever it looks like, can serve to blind us to our identity in Christ the gap can serve to blind us to the fact that God has already provided for us everything we need for life and godliness, as Paul teaches in Ephesians. And ultimately, how these gaps can blind us to God's process for our life when we forget that the Christian life is one of constant work, constant growth, constant confession, repentance, and faith, and all of this happening within the context of community. And so, you know, in this passage, when it relates to this gap that exists between what the gospel teaches us and what our life looks like, Paul reminds us of a couple of things. He, he addresses these gaps specifically in verse number 14. He reminds us that God is our Father. In verse 15, he reminds us that God has a big family. That may be me, and if I'm doing that, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but that God is our father in verse 14 and we're his children in verse 15 that God has a big family that our identity is found with one another our brothers and sisters in verse 16 and 17 that God gives us his Holy Spirit to fill us and to strengthen us to give us faith he reminds us in these passages that Christ actually dwells in us because we belong to him so he addresses the gap of identity he reminds us that Christ has given us all we need for life and godliness. In verse 16, he reminds us that God has all the riches of the world and he strengthens us according to those riches. In verse 16, he reminds us that God gives us power and faith for daily life. In verses 17 through 19, he reminds us that God will root and ground us in the love that he has for us and prays that we would come to comprehend it. But also... Paul reminds us of the process of the Christian life. He reminds us and he encourages us, even as he's praying for the Ephesian believers here to pursue and to comprehend the love of Christ. He prays that they would take hold of it, that they would grasp it, that they would actively pursue the knowledge of the love of Christ, the length and width and depth and height and all these things. That's where I want to camp out for just a minute and focus in on that idea for just a few seconds here, a few minutes. We've been reminded that our identity is Christ. We've been reminded that God has offered us everything he has for life and godliness. And so practically, I want to focus in on how we pursue the knowledge of God's love and the power of the gospel that Paul prays for here. G.K. Chesterton once said, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and left untried. But Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this to his disciples as well, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart 
You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Chesterton is right, the Christian life is hard. Um, We can't deny that. We live in a world that is crushed and broken by sin, and it affects all of us in every way possible. And anybody who tells you that the Christian life is not hard is lying to you. It is. And yet Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 says that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. He doesn't say that there isn't a burden. And he doesn't say that there isn't a yoke. Everybody know what a yoke is? A yoke is what you put around a mule or a horse or a donkey when they pull a plow or they pull a pull something. I'm going to be still. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, when, they, when they pull something, I'm reminded. I don't know if any of you in here have had the opportunity to visit Charleston, but when you go to Charleston, there's these carriages going all over the place, horses and mules and whatnot, and you constantly see these yokes and these animals pulling and working to pull the carriages wherever they're going. So even in the fact that Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, he doesn't tell us there is no burden. He doesn't tell us there is no yoke. The reality for most of us is that we are not filled with the strength that Paul prays for in the Ephesian, for the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 3. The reality for most of us is that we are not filled full with all the fullness of God. The reality for most of us is that we have not grasped the magnitude of God's love. And so Jesus' words when he tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, those words ring hollow and untrue. Because we don't have the strength that God offers or we don't understand the love that God wants us to understand or we're not filled with all the fullness of God. And so the way of Jesus becomes burdensome and heavy rather than easy and light. So how do we get from this point, right? How do we get from the point where there's a gap between the truth of what God offers, the truth of what Paul prays for? How how do we get from there to where those things become a reality in our everyday life. And I'm not going to stand up here and give you a method, but I do want to point out some things that are, that are practical for us to understand. So I'm glad that you've asked me the question, how do we get from point A to point B? Thank you. Yesterday, my wife and I had the opportunity to run in a race near Atlanta. I have run in one before called a Spartan race. Has anybody heard of a Spartan race? Anybody at all? Spartan race is essentially a, a mud run on steroids. It's the race we ran yesterday was a five-mile race through mud and dirt and whatever else. And over the course of the five-mile race, you, um, you have to complete several military-style obstacles. So we probably had to go through probably 24 or so military-style obstacles Climbing cargo ropes, climbing eight-foot walls, doing all this crazy stuff. And you might ask, why would you do something so dumb? And trust me, when I was racing yesterday, I was thinking the same thing. Why am I doing this? But um, over the, the past year, I've had the opportunity to run in a couple other races as well, a couple of half marathons. My wife is training for a half marathon right now that she's going to run in April. And so the question is, how did we get ready for these races? Did we get ready by waking up the morning of the race, putting on our running shoes, putting on whatever clothes we're going to run in or, or do the, 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 the race in, and show up at the start line and look like a runner? 
Was that the only preparation we did? Did we go and did we run and did we do all this crazy stuff that we did yesterday simply by showing up and acting the part? And my response is no, not at all. Not at all. Most runners I know want to do their best when they run a race. Maybe they're not trying to win, but they're definitely trying to beat their previous best time or do the very best that they can. And so most runners that I know train and exercise and prepare and do whatever it takes to get ready for whatever race they're about to run. And so that's what I did leading up to the race this past weekend and races that I've had the opportunity to do over the last year, things I never thought I would do. Um, And that's what my wife is doing is she's prepping to run a half marathon next month. We train, we prepare, we put in the work, we make an effort. So how does that relate to the Christian life? So when it comes to our salvation, we are saved by grace through faith and by grace alone, right? That's solid foundation. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, in the previous chapter to where we are now, Paul reminded the Ephesian church that he said to them, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is the basis for God's acceptance of us. His work, his doing, his grace. Nothing that we can do. But God's gift of grace does not mean that sufficient strength and fullness and understanding of God's love will automatically be infused into our being in our moments of need. If it were true, Paul would not have had to pray for it. If it were true, you would not sin when you do. So evidently, the strength and the fullness of God and all that God offers us isn't something that's just automatic. It's freely given. But we have to be reminded that the reality of the Christian life is that the Christian life is a life of preparation and a life of process. Just like we're getting ready to run a race. That preparation is pointless without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That work is pointless without God having saved us and called us to be his own. And yet we are called to that process nonetheless. Many of us, many believers that I know, make the mistake of thinking that the Christian life is merely about loving our enemies, merely about turning the other cheek, merely about going the extra mile, suffering patiently and expectantly, and all the while living our life just like everyone else around us, being no different. And that is a mistake. It is a way of living that is bound to fail, And it's a way of living that's bound to make the Christian life more difficult than it already is. So what does this process look like? What are the steps, the prerequisites, if you will, for bridging the gap between our knowledge of the gospel and the gospel playing out in our lives every day, being a reality with us? And I can't be clear enough that it all starts and ends with Jesus. If Jesus isn't involved in the process, the process is pointless and it's worthless. But these prerequisites, if you will, simply prepare the soul 
the, the, our soul, the soil of our hearts for God's work. Yet it's God who brings it all to fruition. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you want to get into really good shape, if you want to get into really good shape, run a half marathon, run a marathon shape, what do you do? Well, you develop an exercise regime and you work out and you prepare and you get ready. Maybe you need to hire a personal trainer or surround yourself with people who will encourage you and exercise with you as you prepare for that race. But whatever it is, whatever you do, you have to be intentional about staying on the top of your game. You have to be intentional about staying in shape. For centuries, Christians have invested in training up spiritually fit people by encouraging things we often call the spiritual disciplines. And that is the process of the Christian life. What are those prerequisites that, prerequisites that prepare us for the work of God in us and through us? Let me give you a couple of examples. This is elementary stuff, but I can't stress to you how important it is. Regular, sustained, seeking prayer. Regular, sustained, seeking prayer. This was incredibly important to Jesus. You can't read through the Gospels and not see how often Jesus would get away from everybody by himself simply to pray and be with the Father. It was an absolute necessity for Jesus. It is an absolute necessity for you as you live the Christian life, as you bridge the gap between what Jesus tells us we have and what our lives look like every single day. What's another part of our workout routine? Well, it's regular, sustained obedience to God's word. God's word is very clear about some things that we should obey. There's no way around them. What's another one? Living in community, being part of a church, a, a small group or a home group or, or, or whatever. I'm not sure what they're called here at Bria. I know you guys do them. Meeting with friends and fellow church members to encourage one another in the gospel. Being a part of a church. Coming to worship on Sunday mornings. Here's a fourth one. Regular sustained scripture reading. Regular sustained scripture reading. Here's another one. Meditating on and seeking a deeper understanding of the gospel. Now when I say meditation, I don't mean meditation in the, in the Eastern sense of emptying your mind and saying om or whatever it might be. I mean meditation in the sense of filling your mind with the truths of the gospel over and over and over and over that we might grasp the width and the height and the length and the depth of God's love. With an understanding of the gospel, we began to grasp things just like that. How wide and how long and how deep and how high is the love of God. Service to one another in the church. Encouraging one another. Serving where God would have you serve. There are other spiritual disciplines that Christians have practiced for thousands of years. Fasting. Things like that. But they're all vitally important. They're, they're so simple. And yet, they're so necessary for us in our Christian lives. And they can't be stressed enough. They, they just can't. 
So let's bring this whole thing full circle so that you guys can stop listening to me ran on here for a little bit. What does Paul pray for the Ephesian church? He prays that they would be strengthened, that they would grasp the love of God, and they, they would be filled with the fullness of God. Very specifically what he prays, that they would be strengthened, that they would grasp the love of God, and that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Very clear that he prays those things. Those things don't necessarily happen automatically, hence Paul prays for them to happen. There's often a gap between what we know to be true and our reality and experience. And that gap is bridged by understanding our identity in Christ, by realizing that God has already provided everything for us that we need for life and godliness in Jesus, and understanding that the Christian life involves work and process, not to get favor from God, but to prepare our hearts and souls for the work of God in our lives. And there is absolutely no substitute for an intentional, disciplined Christian life. Let me say that again. There is no substitute for an intentional, disciplined Christian life. Do I sound like a Puritan? That's not necessarily a bad thing. My point is not just to sound stodgy or to sound puritanical here. My point is to remind us all that what Paul prays for here can be a reality in our lives. But for most of us, it's not a reality because there's a gap between what we know to be true, what God offers in our everyday experience. It all starts with Jesus. It all ends with Jesus. Yet that doesn't mean there's not a process for us. There's not involvement for us. So let me ask you one final question. Why is any of this important? Why should we even care? It's simple. You're gathered here this morning as a church. You're gathered together. Because God has called you and your church to a specific mission and a specific purpose that is defined by Scripture. Things like the Great Commission, that the gospel would go forth, that disciples would be made known, that God's word would be taught, that people would be drawn into community, the community of faith. God has given you a mission. God has given you a purpose. Without the strength of God provided by his riches... Without a supernatural grasping of God's love, without our individual bodies and corporate bodies being filled full by the Holy Spirit, without a supernatural work of Jesus, none of this will ever happen. You see what Paul says here, verses 20 and 21? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. God has a purpose for the church. God set apart the church for a purpose. The way that God works is that he calls his church to be on mission for the gospel. God doesn't need us. God can do whatever he wants. And yet, God still set his church apart for a purpose with a mission. God has called you to be a part of that mission. And Paul reminds the Ephesian church that God is able to do far more abundantly than all they could ever ask or think according to the power at work within them, which is through Jesus. Christ can do far more abundantly than we ask, and Christ will be glorified, he will be manifested, he will be made known in his church. And so church, I have to ask you the question this morning, where does that leave you? Where does that leave me? 
Where do we find ourselves this morning as we've heard from God's word, hopefully, and God has been moving in our hearts and minds? Maybe it finds us at the place this morning where we need to develop an exercise routine. Maybe personally, spiritually, there's an exercise routine you need to develop. Maybe it means spending five minutes a day reading God's word, five minutes a day praying. Nobody's asking you to go and read all the book of Leviticus today. But it's probably a good thing if you spend some time in God's word today. Spend five minutes praying, meditating on the gospel, doing things together as a church. Maybe this morning um, where this passage finds you is a recognition that, that, that your identity is in Christ and not in anything else, that Christ has all that you will ever need for life and godliness. I, I don't know. Maybe there's one specific area of discipline that, um, that you need to pursue, whatever that looks like. I, I don't know. But I have a good feeling that you know. And so as we've heard from God's word this morning, as God draws us to himself, as we respond to what God has called us to, let me encourage you to pursue those things, to pursue the things that Paul prays for in this passage here. I'm going to pray for us. God, thank you for the opportunity again to be together this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship. Thank you for the opportunity just to spend a little bit of time um, focusing on your word and not only hearing what your word has to say, but hopefully being practical about the way we can apply what we've read in your word to our lives on a daily basis. God, I pray over the next few minutes as we continue to worship and respond as we're together for a little while longer that you would continue to work in our hearts and minds. You would bring us to the point where you would have us. God, we thank you for your son Jesus around whose name we can gather. And Holy Father, we ask all this in his name. Amen.